turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, if you're not there already. John chapter 11. Um, Okay, we're all turned on now. Um, John chapter 11, uh, if you're visiting with us, we work our way through books of the Bible, typically, although we were uh, having a little break from the Gospel of John, but we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, and uh, starting in verse 1, chapter 1, and working our way through, and we find ourselves about halfway through the Gospel of John right now, Um, chapter 11. And so I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 16, and I want you to keep your eyes on uh, words that are repeated. Often ancient writers uh, would try to draw us to the point of what they're trying to say through repetition. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end in death, but... For the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light. He sees the light of the world of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, so that we may die with him. Let's again ask the Lord for help. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Lord, do your work in our hearts, this unchanging, eternal word that stands. May we believe it. May we live it. In Jesus' name, amen. On November 4th of this past year, 2020, a popular Christian blogger by the name of Tim Challies wrote these words. In all the years I've been writing, I've never had to type words more difficult, more devastating than these. Yesterday the Lord called my son to himself. My dear son, my sweet son, my kind son, my godly son, my only son. Nick was playing a game with his sister and fiance and many other students when he suddenly collapsed, <clears throat> never regaining consciousness. Students, paramedics, doctors battled valiantly but could not save him. He's with the Lord he loved, the Lord he longed to serve. <clears throat> we have no answers to what or why questions. He was 19 years old. 
was studying at Boyce College, aspiring towards the ministry, was on a track to go to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and his life was snuffed out at 19 years of age. The reality of death and suffering in this fallen world hits each and every one of us. And if it hasn't hit you yet, you just need to live a little bit longer and you will experience it. The loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a grandparent brings heavy grief and sorrow to our lives. And often this grief is felt more exponentially during the holiday seasons when there's that empty spot at the table. When that loved one is not there. Well, in John chapter 11, there are two sisters who are about to experience the heavy grief of their brother's death. And just to set something of the context of John chapter 11, the big picture of John, the Gospel of John, is that he records these signs so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in His name. He says that in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. And the first 11 chapters is sometimes called the signs book of the Gospel of John because it records seven signs uh, of Jesus, seven miracles. And, And John specifically calls them signs because they point to who Jesus is. And the more immediate context of this passage, we just in previous weeks looked at John chapter 10 where Jesus uses this wonderful imagery of Himself as the Good Shepherd who cares for His flock, who cares for His sheep, and even lays down His life for His sheep. And He protects His sheep and He makes sure none of His sheep are lost. And here in John chapter 11, we get this actually marvelous picture of Jesus caring for His sheep. But the reality is, is it doesn't actually, at least at first glance, look like He's being very caring. And this is, I believe, what John wants to teach us. He wants to teach us this morning that God is glorified through death and suffering amidst His own people as He seeks the good of His own people. Let's pick up the story. Verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So the chapter starts out giving us something of the setting. Somebody is sick. The man's name is Lazarus. Probably a a different form of the name Eleazar that we often find in the Old Testament, which is a name that means the Lord is my helper, which is actually quite appropriate because Jesus is going to help him as this passage unfolds. And also... The, the, the little town, the village of Bethany is mentioned here. Now this is significant because Bethany was a small village that as the passage unfolds we find out was about two miles away from Jerusalem. Now Jesus has just been experiencing some very heated conflict in Jerusalem with the religious leaders. Namely, they wanted his head on a platter. They wanted him dead. <clears throat> and so in the, at the end of the previous chapter, Jesus leaves that area. He goes to an area where John was baptizing uh, in uh, the Jordan in previous years. And, uh, and evidently, it's, it's, it's a good chance Jesus goes even further away uh, from Jerusalem because of the, the heat and persecution that he's experiencing. And notice also <clears throat> who's mentioned to be in this village, Mary and her sister Martha. Now, one fascinating thing about uh, this passage here is we, we, we get a window into Jesus and His relationship with Lazarus and His two sisters, Mary and Martha. And uh, it was in the year 1872 that archaeologists were digging in what we know as ancient Bethany and they came across a cave 
And on the inscription on this cave, it had the people who had been buried in this cave. And there was a list of names. And sure enough, there are the names of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Now, many of the commentators are somewhat uh, modest and say, well, we don't know if it was exactly them, but if you have two or more siblings, let me ask you, how many other families do you know with the exact names of those you yourself and those two other siblings? It's pretty rare, right? And so that was probably the, the tomb of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Verse 2, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So, we're given now more information. Mary, who's now identified not with the many other Marys of the Bible, which are very hard to keep track of because Mary was evidently a very common name. You know, you have Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary of Bethany here. And this Mary of Bethany is further described as the one who anointed Jesus' uh, Jesus's feet with oil and, and, and actually wiped her hair, wiped his feet with her hair. And John actually will record this just in the chapter later. So he's giving us kind of a preview, but this, this also gives us a window into the kind of relationship that Jesus had with this, these siblings here. It was an intimate, loving relationship here. Also, you, you may remember Mary and Martha from another episode. I think it's in Luke chapter 12. Remember when Jesus was teaching and Mary is at Jesus' feet learning and Martha gripes to Jesus that, you know, Mary's not helping out with all the busy work and, and Jesus kind of rebukes Martha and says that Mary has chosen the better path. And so this is a, this is a, a, um, a family that comes up quite often in the New Testament. In fact, that in the other Gospels, sometimes we, we just see Jesus going to Bethany and doesn't mention this family, but, but we know who He was visiting. He was visiting this family. Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And by the way, it was probably a fairly well-to-do family because we see them hosting gatherings in Luke chapter 12. We're mentioned, it's mentioned here that the brother Lazarus was sick. Verse 3. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So this messenger comes to Jesus. No doubt the disciples are close by. And the messenger gives this statement. Lord, he whom you love is sick. It's interesting. They don't say Lazarus is sick. Evidently, they knew that Jesus knew exactly who he was talking about when they say, He whom you love is sick. It's quite a title. The one whom the Lord loves is sick. Verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Jesus' response is interesting. It's interesting because he uses the word end, which end in Greek as well as in English uh, can have multiple meanings. Sometimes it can be the end of something chronologically, like the end of a book or the end of a movie. Or sometimes it can mean the purpose of something. And there's, there's probably a play on words that's somewhat ambiguous here. What does Jesus mean? That this sickness isn't going to chronologically end in death? Well, it kind of does, right? But more likely, Jesus means here, I think, namely that it's going to end in Him being glorified, what is hinted at that we see later on. Spoiler alert. He does bring Lazarus out of the grave. But Jesus says that the point of this death, the purpose of this death, is for the glory of God. God's honor, God's reputation, and that the Son might be glorified by it. 
Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, notice I I told you at the beginning to keep an eye on the repeated words here. Love is something that's repeated throughout this section. Glory is something that's repeated throughout this section. Believe is something that's repeated throughout this section. And here, the author says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And Lazarus has already been described as the one whom Jesus loved. In fact, if you're one of those people who, who gets a little bit queasy when, when people express their love for one another, this chapter, you're not going to like it. I mean, it's just gushing with love. It, it's, it's so oozing with love. that Everybody loves one another in this passage. There's no mistake about it. Jesus loves Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and they love Him. In fact, even towards the end, when they see Jesus blubbering at the graveside of Lazarus, everybody looking on says, Wow, look how much He loved Him. That's what makes verse 6 actually so shocking. Did you notice it? John just said, Jesus loved Martha and his sister Mary and Lazarus. And what's the first word in verse 6? So, if we were writing the story, we might say, so Jesus immediately ran to Bethany. So Jesus rented a horse and got on his saddle and went to Bethany. So Jesus made haste with his disciples. Jesus packed his stuff. It doesn't say that. It says, in fact, the opposite of what we would think it would say. And and by the way, if your translation doesn't say so, you might need to get a new translation. Because that so is very important. It's a shocker. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He didn't budge. He stayed exactly where he was at. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews... We're just now seeking to stone you and you are going there again? So again, we, we've, we felt the heat throughout the Gospel of John. I mean, how many times did it say things like they picked up stones to stone Him? They were seeking to seize Him. Uh, you know, but Jesus escaped their midst. We see it over and over throughout the Gospel of John. And the disciples, uh, they're realizing this, okay, if we go... To Bethany, which is just two miles outside of Jerusalem, um, it might be off with our heads. We might not make it out of there alive. And so they say to Jesus, um, are, are you sure you want to go there? And the after this is more than likely uh, refers back to, to verse 6, the two days. He stayed two days longer and then after this, Jesus says, let's pack the bags. We're going to Bethany. And the disciples pause. Is it worth it? Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So Jesus' response here is, is, he says, Are there not twelve hours in the day? Now you may be thinking, well, I thought there was 24 hours in the day. Well, obviously Jesus is talking about daylight hours, which by the way, you know, in the ancient world without watches, without atomic clocks and things like that, and the way they tell time was the day started when the sun rose. And there would, you know, if they had a sundial, they'd mark off like 12 ticks around the sundial. And if you were going to meet somebody at, say, uh, you know, noon, assuming the sun rose at 6 in the morning, you would look for the, you know, when the sundial, the shade moved to that sixth tick on, on the sundial. And you know it was, it was roughly noon. 
And you would meet them there. And by the way, this is, uh, we, we see this in John chapter 4 when it says the woman at the well uh, was with Jesus at the sixth hour. It was high noon. And so Jesus says there's 12 hours in the day. And when it's day, you do daylight kinds of things. And again, in a world before electricity, before lights, you work during daylight hours. You did what you were supposed to do during the daylight. And then when it was lights out, it was literally lights out. You slept, right? Some of you would look a lot better if you got that much sleep. Instead, you're up on social media all night long. You look like you need some sleep. Jesus is saying there's 12 hours of daylight. You work during the day. It's time to work. And what did he mean by that? I'm doing the will of God. I'm doing what I'm supposed to. As long as it's day, as long as I have time left, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Doing the will of the Father. Verse 11. This he said to them after... He said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of his out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So Jesus had been talking about Lazarus uh, as having fallen asleep. Now, we use euphemisms for death today, you know, some more crass than others, somebody kicked the bucket, or somebody uh, passed away. Uh, And so Jesus is, is using this euphemism, this metaphor uh, that is common in the Bible. We see it even in the book of Daniel. Uh, that, 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 that the Bible refers to people as sleeping when they die. And, and it's an appropriate metaphor because it, 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 it communicates the temporary state of death. It, it communicates the future resurrection because when you sleep like snoring kind of sleep, you wake up from that, you get up from that, so the body that dies uh, will one day rise from the dead. And, and, and it communicates well with, with here with Lazarus because he was dead, but Jesus is going to bring him out of the dead. He says, I'm going to go and wake him up. But the disciples here evidently don't have classically trained minds haven't taken essentials to know what a metaphor is. And so they take Jesus very literally here and say, uh, he's going to be okay. It's good he's getting some rest. <laughs> and so Jesus has to speak to them very literally. He's dead. He's dead. Verse 15, he says, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Now again, this is interesting. If you don't know the end of the story, Jesus says, I'm glad I was not there. Before it said, he loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, so he stayed two more days. Here he says, he's glad that he wasn't there, so that you may believe, but let us go to meet him. Verse 16, Therefore Thomas, who's called twin, or Didymus, the Bible never tells us whose twin was, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. 
Thomas often gets a bad rap, right? Because he's the guy at the end of the Gospel of John who won't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead unless he sees his hands and his side. But here we see he was a devoted follower of Jesus. He says, guys, buck up, let's go. We're ready to die. Now what do we make of this passage? We'll stop here. It's, it's, it's hard teaching a large narrative like this for, because it's such a large section of Scripture. But I trust, again, you know the end of the story that Jesus does indeed call, summon Lazarus out of the grave by the end of the story. But, but what do we make of this? What do we make of this? This repetition of Jesus in this clear, loving relationship with His friends... In particular, Lazarus, him getting word that Lazarus is sick, but instead of running to Lazarus to heal him, he waits until he dies and then eventually goes. By this time, it's been four days later, and he summons Lazarus out of the grave. And also, this statement, almost cryptic statement, that he's doing this for the glory of God and for the glory of the Son. And I think what we can conclude by this is that God seeks to glorify Himself through death and suffering in love towards His own. That these, that His glory in revealing Himself to His people is actually the most loving thing He can do for His people. But it doesn't always appear that way, does it? It doesn't seem that way. In fact, as the passage unfolds, Jesus is going to encounter three groups of people or groups of people along the way and the response is going to be similar. In 1121... Jesus comes to Martha. Martha actually ran out to when she heard Jesus is almost there. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 11.32, Mary. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw Him and fell at His feet saying to Him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have have died. The mourners also in 11.36 and 37. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying to Him, see how He loved Him. But, some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? He loved him, but he let him die. He loved him, but he let the sisters experience such heavy grief. And so each of these statements, in a very real sense, is filled with doubt. There's this disconnect. He seems to love him. He has the power to heal them, to heal Lazarus. He could have done it. If he had been here, Lazarus wouldn't be dead. But he's dead. And so, just two points of application this morning. Instead of doubting, trust Jesus' love when you experience death and tragedy. Instead of doubting, trust Jesus' love when you experience death and tragedy. You see, Jesus knows that the glory of God and His glory revealing Himself is the most loving thing He can do for His friends. And that's what he does. He puts 
Himself and God threw Himself on display in rising Lazarus from the dead. And this takes us back, by the way, to John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to reveal God... And He's glorified in that self-disclosure as His people receive that revelation by faith and believe in who He is. And here is an instance where He knows that allowing this death and suffering to take place is the most loving thing He can do for His own so that He can show more of Himself through it. But, place yourself in Mary and Martha's sandals for a minute. Right? Because it doesn't feel loving, does it? It hurts. We have Mary and Martha there, and they, in urgency, send a messenger to wherever Jesus is at. And evidently, uh, they know where Jesus is at or else they wouldn't have been able to send a messenger. It's not like they could have just texted Jesus. So they send a messenger to Jesus and so they know, would have known precisely how far away he was. Probably about a day's journey. And they send this messenger and the messenger says, the one whom you love is sick. And maybe the messenger waited around a little bit. We don't know. You know, okay. Um, okay, Jesus, you, you, your friend, Lazarus, he's, he's sick. Did you hear me? And Jesus doesn't budge. Guys, what are we eating for dinner? <laughs> An hour goes by, two hours, a day goes by, two days go by. And perhaps by now the messenger has already gone back. And, and imagine that messenger coming back to Mary and Martha... And Mary and Martha just berating him with questions. Did you tell him? Why is he not here? What's he doing? What do you mean he didn't come? What do you mean he asked what's for dinner? What do you mean? What? What? He's not here. And they're looking at their dear brother lying on his deathbed wondering what in heaven's name is Jesus up to? Why isn't he coming? I mean, even you may not have the power to heal, but if you found out that your friend was on death's door, you would go, right? I mean, if for nothing else, to give your last goodbyes. But Jesus doesn't go. And no doubt they could have been tempted even to think, I mean, Jesus, you've done hundreds of healings. Most on people whom you don't even know. And here we are, Jesus. I mean, you've been in our house. We love you. You love us. And you just let him die like that. They may have even known of the healing of the nobleman's son in John chapter 5. Remember that? Jesus actually didn't even go. The nobleman comes and says that his son is sick on death's door. And Jesus speaks the word. He says, go home. And the guy goes home. And he's healed. He didn't even need to go. But he doesn't heal These are the questions that sometimes come up in our minds as we experience tragedy, suffering, and death. We know that God the Almighty has the power to heal. We know that He can do anything He wants to do. Amen. And yet so often, He allows His children to go through pain and suffering. And we're tempted to think, God, 
Do you really care? God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? And yet the reality is, is that He is. You see, all suffering and evil bows before the sovereign purposes of Almighty God. And He knows what's best for each and every one of His children. And sickness does not end in death, but the glory of God. You see, every saint that is lowered six feet under will one day rise from the dead. And it will be glorious. And all will bow before King Jesus and say, wow, look what you've done. Look how loving you were for your own. All suffering that God's people endure will be able to see so clearly how God worked out Romans 8, 28 and 29 in their life that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. Mary and Martha didn't understand what Jesus was up to. We don't always understand what Jesus is up to. But you can trust Him. You see, the same Jesus who this text gushes with love about is the same Jesus who loves for His own today. Oh, He may not be physically in your house, but He's there. He's not bodily there, but He's there spiritually. He's there caring for you, watching over you. You have a relationship with Him. He cares for you. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And He's allowing difficulty in your life. Suffering. And it's motivated by His love. But you can't see it. But you can trust Him. You see it over and over throughout the Scriptures, right? All the different narratives of Scripture, whether it's, whether it's the, uh, Joseph in Genesis chapter 38 through, through the end where he's sold into slavery and, and experiences all this kind of hardship and God was working it all together so that by the end of it all, Joseph can say to his brothers who sold him into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We see it in the life of Ruth and Naomi, right? As, as, as Naomi is bereaved over the death of her two boys and her husband. But by the end of the story, wondrously and gloriously, God has engrafted her into the messianic line. We see it through all the twists and turns of the book of Esther. And all the malicious evil plots of the Hitler of the Old Testament, of Haman. But God works it all for the deliverance of His people. We see it several pages later. When the champion of the disciples, the Lord Jesus, is hanging on a Roman cross... Suffering, abused, unjustly treated. And God the Almighty is wisely and wonderfully working behind the scenes for the greatest good imaginable, the salvation of His people. At first glance, it doesn't look very loving. But you need to scratch below the surface a little bit and trust that God is up to something good. If He did it through the greatest evil of all human history, namely the murder of Jesus, then you can trust He's working good in whatever lesser evil you are experiencing. You see, my friends, God permits that which He hates 
to accomplish that which he loves. He permits that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. Will you trust him for that? Or will you kick against that? Arthur W. Pink says, The verse now before us plainly teaches that sickness in a believer is by no means incompatible with the Lord's love for such a one. There are some who teach that sickness in a saint is sure evidence of the Lord's displeasure. The case of Lazarus ought to forever silence such an heir. Even the chosen friends of Christ sicken and die. How utterly incompetent then we are to estimate God's love for us by our temporal condition or circumstances. So friend, will you trust Jesus in His love in the midst of the pain of death and suffering? But secondly, instead of doubting, trust Jesus' love when your prayers seem unanswered. Did you notice that in the passage? It doesn't look like a prayer at first glance. But it's a prayer sent through a messenger. It's an appeal. As Mary and Martha send this messenger to Jesus and say, uh, Jesus, the one you love is sick. Implied in that is Jesus could do something about it. Implied in that, and even in the statements later on, Lord, if you had been here... He would be alive. Lord, if you had been here, He would be alive. Isn't this one who heals blind people, if He had been here, He would be alive. And so there's this knowledge Jesus has the power to do something. There's this knowledge Jesus does care, but He doesn't seem to do anything about it. It's the difficulty of unanswered prayer. But in a sense, all prayer is answered. It just doesn't mean it's a yes. <laughs> right? But you see, friends, can I suggest to you that being disgruntled with God because of unanswered prayer is a very... and doubting God's love in that is a very immature view of God and His love. You, you get this. Anybody who's a parent, or even an uncle or an aunt, anybody who has a relationship with a child gets this. You know, you're at Walmart and the marketers of Walmart maliciously put all the wonderful candy right at eye level for all the children. Mom, can I have that? We have a standing order in our family. You don't ask for anything. <laughs> and it's reiterated every time before we go into the store. But, had an appeal come out. Dad, can we have a candy bar? <laughs> and Dad says no. And that child said, You don't love me. You don't care about me. You don't. You won't. Why? Why don't I care about you, child? Because you won't get me a candy bar. <laughs> and immediately, what floods your mind is the five thousand ways you've demonstrated your love towards that child in the past twenty-four hours, right? <laughs> and you're thinking, "Are you kidding me?" This child is questioning my love because I'm not giving them a candy bar in this moment. You see, such a view of love is such a superficial view of love that thinks of love as that which gratifies my immediate pleasure. But the reality is, is while it's easy to spot in the in ungrateful little child... It's not always as easy to spot in our own hearts. But can I suggest to you it might be there? Probably is there. Anytime God is not responding the way you want to in prayer and you're doubting His love, 
He does all things out of love for His own children. You can trust Him. You don't need to doubt it. He knew what He was doing with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And yes, indeed, by the end of the story, He did raise Lazarus from the dead. And He doesn't often do that. Almost never does that with us. In fact, in the Gospels, only three accounts where He brought somebody back from the dead. And sometimes we scratch our head at that, but actually, would you like to die twice? Is it that great of a thing to be brought back from the dead and to have to go through it twice? Lazarus had to die twice. The prosperity gospel that teaches Jesus died to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy is actually an over, I'm going to use a big, big phrase here, an over-realized eschatology. It's claiming for now that which God promises in heaven. In other words, the resurrection does come. But it comes in the end. The happiness, the wealth, dare I say, does come, but it comes in the end. The suffering before the glory, the pain before the gain, the cross before the crown. Again, Pink says, the Most High is not our servant to be brought into subjection to our will when we pray. Prayer was never designed to place us on the throne, but to bring us to our knees before it. It is not for the creature to dictate to the Creator. It's the happy privilege of the Christian to make known his requests with thanksgiving. But requests are not commands. Requests are not commands. And when the request is not met, you can trust the answer is no because God loves you. Or the answer is wait because God loves you. Or the answer is yes, always because God loves you. And it's no wonder that God works this death, this death of Lazarus, as an expression of love for His own sheep, but also as a revelation of His glory. It's no wonder that as the Gospel of John unfolds, that's exactly how He describes His own death. Turn over to John chapter 12. In verse 27, he's just talked about his death to these Greeks in the previous section. He's spoken of it like a seed that goes into the ground and is buried and brings forth fruit. In verse 27, he says, Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. What's the hour he's talking about? He's saying, God, should I say, spare me from this death, spare me from this suffering? He says, no, this is why I came. And then verse 20, Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The Gospel of John is somewhat unique from the other Gospels in that it often refers to Jesus' own death as His glory. Or His being exalted, being lifted up. 
John 3.14 Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Yes, literally lifted up, but also in a metaphorical sense. This was the exaltation of the Son. You see, friends, God's glory and His love for His people run parallel paths through death. Have you trusted in this glorious, exalted death of Jesus? Is that your hope in the midst of your death? The Wesleys used to say of their people, their fellow Methodists who had converted, our people die well. It was a statement that they died with confidence that they were on their way to heaven. Why? How could they have such confidence? Because they thought they were good people? No. Because they were trusting in Jesus' glorious death and resurrection and His promise that is implied even in His rising Lazarus from the dead that this is the hope of every believer. Because as Jesus says in the heart of this passage, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, oh, we thank you and praise you for this amazing account of our Lord Jesus where he reveals his love and the the glory and And all this in the midst of suffering and death and rising Lazarus out of the grave. Lord, we look forward to that day when our loved ones who've died in Christ hear the summons just like Lazarus did and come from the grave. And we will be caught up together with the Lord. What an amazing hope. What an amazing Savior. We thank You for His shed blood. And even now as we remember His death and resurrection through the communion, I pray that You would enable us to commune with You spiritually. In Jesus' name, Amen. This morning we have the opportunity to remember the death and resurrection of Christ through the cup and through the bread.